to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Yang Hee former UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar and co-founder of the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. You served as Special Rapporteur during a very interesting time in Myanmar's history. You know, the country underwent significant changes. When you started, it was going through a process of democratizing, and we witnessed significant normalization efforts by members of the international community. And despite the hope everyone had for the country, less than five years later, the government perpetrated a genocide against the Rohingya population. Can you reflect on what you witnessed in Myanmar from a human rights perspective during your six years as Special Rapporteur? Well, I started in uh, June of 2014. That was a period of, as you said, uh, transformation period, as it was called then. Um, it was under a quasi-civilian government, under U Sein, who was an ex-general. But he opened up uh, to the international community. And that's when you saw normalization by uh, member states. He was prompted to open up because he saw through Nargis uh, how humanitarian assistance and aid could only be achieved through international uh, efforts. And I think that's what prompted him to open up. And he, he wanted to uh, raise the economic level of Myanmar. And so he was inevitably uh, forced to open up, but that was a smidgen of opening up. And everybody was quite uh, excited about that. And uh, then there was the election of, the 2000, of 2015, where NLD had a, uh, a really a big margin of win which was, I'm, I'm afraid, came to a big surprise to the then um, military uh, government, or se- semi-quasi-civilian government. So it was in 2015, people, if we call 2000, before 2015 under Yu Sein a transformation to democracy period, in 2015, people were, I would say, I would put it in brackets and quote, quote unquote, cautiously optimistic. Uh, everyone was cautiously optimistic that with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi now at the helm, that this country will definitely uh, start to speed up the process of democratization. Well, it didn't go that quickly and it didn't go in that fashion because she was still sharing 
uh, her power with the military. So I call this period, while people call the former period quasi-civilian, I called this period a quasi-military uh, government because the four major uh, military posts, four major ministerial posts were still held by the military. And under the 2008 constitution, 25% of the uh, parliament was held by the military. They sat in the parliament in their military uh, outfits. And of course, any major changes such as uh, constitutional changes had to have a two thirds majority, which would never uh, happen because of the 25% of the military. And that was not just in the national level, it went down to the state level, uh, state uh, legislature had 25% uh, military. And um, so everyone was cautiously optimistic. And I kept asking UN agencies, what do you mean by cautiously optimistic? Uh, and I, cause I surely couldn't find this period optimistic. I was very disappointed at uh, what was still going on in Rakhine. I visited Rakhine uh, many, many times. And um, I was allowed into Northern Rakhine, but not to look around, but it was after the 2016 uh, October, uh, what they called a clearance operation that drove out about 70 to 80,000 uh, Rohingya to Bangladesh. Uh, they let me in because they said it was the big, it was started by ARSA, and they showed me where the ARSA had um, stolen arms and had fired uh, shots, and they, could, they showed areas where uh, there was gunshots, bullet holes, and that killed uh, police officers and guards. And I saw it, what I saw was just absolutely horrific what happened. And I spoke with Aung San Suu Kyi, because by then, you know, we had developed a, a rapport, because I met her in 2000, from 2014, when she was uh, not in power. And I, I was really surprised, I, and I said to her, you know, I think you should go to uh, Rakhine, and as well, you should go to Kachin, because the people in Kachin are very disappointed that you haven't come there while it was the Kachin people that helped her father, General Aung San, to obtain this Panglong agreement way back when. And I said, you have to see what's going on in Rakhine because children are malnourished, Rohingya, Rohingya children are malnourished, and how the military and the security forces had uh, treated um, people uh, in the exodus to Bangladesh was just barbaric. And we all know what happened there. Um, and I've spoken to many people there. And um, when I was in Rakhine, people will come up to me and shake my hands and then they'll hand me over little uh, uh, cards 
it looked like SIM cards where they took photos and, and, and told me horrific stories. So I saw with my own eyes and I told Aung San Suu Kyi, you need to go there and see with your own eyes. I was really surprised at her reaction to, to my request to Rakhine and Kachin. In for my re request to her going to Kachin, she said, I will go there in my own time. That was her response, verbatim. To Rakhine, she said, my ministers are doing their job very well, and I am being reported of what they're doing. So I don't need to go there. I was just dumbfounded. And if you remember in the past and in, in around the world, uh, it was always the special rapporteurs who raised the first alarm to genocide or ethnic cleansing. Always it was the special rapporteurs. And I had was raising my alarm, my flag, the red flag. And um, I said, you know, this really is the hallmark of uh, genocide. And in 2017, we saw this huge in August where 30 cities or places were uh, attacked. But the strangest thing was that Whereas in 2016, we saw many photographs and they paraded. They were able to show me what, where this gunshot was and, and bullet holes were. But in 2017, there are no photographs of where the so-called ARSA had attacked at the same time, you know, at 30 places. And there's no photographs of that. And so I, you can say that 2016 was a prelude to, they tried this out and NLD Aung San Suu Kyi did nothing and the international community did nothing to this. Um, and so they were emboldened to go ahead with a 2017 mass uh, expulsion of the Rohingya in Northern Rakhine. So this is pretty much what I saw. And uh, in 2000, uh, late 2017, I was allowed one more visit. Uh, and when I met with Aung San Suu Kyi in July, I told her that, you know, these there are reports of severe malnutrition in Northern Rakhine uh, of children. and and all the, all, you know, the raised, uh, scorched, it's, it was another scorched earth campaign in Rakhine as there was back in um, 80s and 90s in the uh, Eastern and Western, uh, Eastern and, and uh, North Eastern uh, part of Myanmar. And it was at that time, I was totally surprised that she said, you know, with that narrative, you almost sound like the UN. And I said, I'm not the UN. I'm a special uh, independent person, uh, not a special, but an independent expert. And that's what special rapporteurs are supposed to do, be doing. She and I had 
uh, had a tete-a-tete every time I met with her, and she would ask me about my parents and this and that. And and totally, this time, she was uh, completely different. And uh, then she said to me, because I had asked her for more access in uh in Kachin and in Northern Shan, because next time I come, I would like access to uh, Lokai uh, and Kukai and Lokau. And th- these are the areas that are now heavy uh, uh, war fronts now. And she said to me, you know, if you continue that narrative, you may not get any access. And three days later, somebody whom I helped for her ex-husband, Korpagi's case, and her case, she's, she had become a parliamentarian. She uh, poses a resolution to ban me from coming into the country. That was three days after my end of uh, mission statement. And the parliament unanimously voted and so by then, I was PNG'd in December. So I was not able to go back to Myanmar. So that was what I had witnessed. And, and I had witnessed a lot. And I have seen uh, firsthand from the people in uh, northern Rakhine and the people in Sitwe, where still we have people living in IDP camps. And I visited um, Cox's Bazaar many, many times and spoken with the people who had left the atrocities from uh, Myanmar. The situation in Myanmar has obviously subsequently deteriorated further. Um, you know, you just mentioned active conflict zones it deteriorated further in 2021 when the military overthrew Aung San Suu Kyi's government. As you continue to be a vocal advocate for the people of Myanmar and you're a founder of the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar. What are your thoughts on the current crisis in the country? There were many signs to this uh, attempted coup. I call it a coup attempt. It hasn't finished yet. It's still ongoing. The uh, junta has not overthrown the government. The uh, national unity government is still there. it, we saw uh, some precursors to, you know, some little uh, indications. Um, when in 2015, when um, uh, NLD came into power and, and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, gave the position to Shui Man, the, uh, what was it called, legal affairs and um, legislative committee or something to that effect. I forget the correct correct name. That was the committee entrusted to amend uh, or abolish laws. I gave her a, a, a list of 200 laws that go back to the imperial period that are in her hands, you know, the, uh, the abolishment of the 2008 Constitution is not in her hands. But there are simple laws that she can uh, rescind. Uh, 
and new laws that she can uh, promulgate. But she didn't do any of that. Some of the laws became harsher, like the uh, freedom of expression association and uh, some of the uh, online laws and uh, media laws became harsher. And I, I thought, this is not right. She had all the time in house arrest to have a master plan for when she obtained power. But it was obvious that she did not have a master plan. Uh, she, she wanted to, at first she started with heading four ministries, four positions. She wanted to be a foreign minister, the state counselor, a minister of education, and this and that. But then she uh, just settled for uh, foreign minister, I think, and um, state counselor. So she, but she did not uh, do things that, that were in her hands. Instead, more journalists, more people were being charged down with sentences and, and being arrested. And so, and the military were being more emboldened. And it was very strange that um, the power sharing uh, continued and the military still had a stronger grip and they were gaining a, a stronger grip. Uh, and when the 2020 elections came around, she, the NLD party won with a larger margin. And that, to me, uh, raised some bells, alarm bells. Uh, so the military attempted a coup and it's still go ongoing. Uh, the, for the first time in the history of Myanmar, 70 years, the EAOs, we now call them uh, ethnic revolutionary organizations instead of ethnic armed organizations. They are now uh, in aligning with the NUG. And, um, and they are becoming very uh, active. Uh, the, the Three Brotherhood Alliance, including the uh, Arakan Army, have joined in. And now uh, with the PDFs and the general strikes, you know, Myanmar, the early part of when 2011, there was a lot of uh, civil disobedient movements, general strikes. Now we have the PDFs, uh, People's Defense Forces, which is now under the control of the NUG, but they're working closely with the EROs. So the first time in the history of Myanmar, the EROs and the BAMAs, the NLD or the NUG are working together. And with their uh, military skills, the ERO's military skills, they're now being able to recapture the townships and the towns that uh, were lost. A couple years ago, we at uh, SACM, the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar, did a research paper and a mapping uh, and, and showed that the effective control, of course, effective control would mean how the people accepts it, the governance and um, the territorial. But looking at the territorial control only, 
even men online said that they only had 30% control. But we saw that true control by the junta was 17%. 50% was controlled by the EROs, and about 30% are contested. But now the, the tide has turned. For once, the tide has turned. The people ca called for R2P, and they called for uh, more uh, humanitarian assistance, but they needed military arms to defend themselves. It was a, a war of defense uh, for the, uh, the people of Myanmar. The tide has turned, and now uh, they're gaining more control in the ethnic areas and now even in the, um, the central part of Myanmar. So, as I said, the, the battlefield has changed and the military it has now, they have to fight in all fronts. In the past, it was either Rakhine State or in the eastern part or northern part. Now they are in all fronts and you've heard of many defections and even high level military um, officers are defecting and many camps and men, uh, many uh, brigades being overtaken by the uh, ERO forces. Now the, the ERO forces have uh, captured some uh, ammunition and munition uh, through this way, and they're uh, utilizing these ammunitions and munitions that they have uh, acquired through this. So I, you have to remember that in, in Throughout the world, there has not been a country where the people resisted and, and is fighting three years on into the coup. Usually a coup comes around and things get finished within a few months. But now it's, it's a three-year uh, mark since the coup started and the people are still going uh, strong. The young people of Myanmar will not let Myanmar go back to the old oppressive military regime because they grew up with a bit of freedom and, uh, and democracy for the past ten, uh, the 10 years before the coup. The resilience of populations in Myanmar throughout this three years has been really incredible to watch from the outside. I'm curious, you know, given the history of the military's tactics while fighting Euros, as well as in general targeting of various towns in the ethnic areas of Myanmar, you know, what are the risks you see to civilians at the current moment? Risks are very high. Uh, people are all hiding in the jungles. And in, from the beginning of the coup, people coming even uh, from the central and even in Yangon area, they, they uh, went into the jungles. And it, it was the uh, ethnic uh, commanders who were uh, supporting them. And there are many, many displaced people in uh, the ethnic uh, states. And it's only in the ethnic states that uh, school is functioning uh, services are uh, health services are being carried out. There's even judiciary, uh, administrative services are being carried out there. Uh, so 
it's it's really amazing to see how these ethnic states have uh, developed their own uh, governance system throughout the history of Myanmar. But right now, things are normal. But it, in areas where the military has control or contested control, there's no school. There's no. They're attacking schools. They're attacking hospitals. And so. Uh, uh, health services and medical ser- uh, services and aid is not reaching the people. It's reaching only to the government, to the military and their family. Uh, so the, it's the, the people that suffer the most. Uh, and, uh, and now we're seeing the families, the military are defecting. And as you know, the military's families all live in a compound uh, because that it's almost like it's another rogue state, just like DPRK, where the military don't want to have their uh, families of their personnel mingle with the civilian population uh, because they are afraid that they will defect and, ha- and persuade their uh, members of the, the family, which will be mostly the, the male who are in the army, uh, the, the, the Tatmadaw to defect. So, uh, and now we, we are seeing that uh, there's no humanitarian assistance going cross-border as we suggested through the ethnic communities because they, they know they have a network, they know how to deliver services to the most needy. Whereas the government, uh, the previous times, the military, uh, even during the quasi-military government, they really did not deliver aids to necessary aids to the the people that the civilians that are in most need. It was only directed to the people that uh, corroborated with the military. Since you mentioned, um, you know, some of the reporting you've done through the Special Advisory Council for Myanmar, I was wondering if you could sort of give a background on the advisory council and, and what you're hoping to achieve through it? Well, um, in 2020, I finished my mandate and um, I thought, well, we need something to uh, to do more advocacy work for Myanmar because having been a special rapporteur, uh, sometimes your hands are tied. Uh, you do have a code of conduct, and the, your reportings and the support you have uh, in financial and personnel support is very, very limited. And I was talking with my colleagues who were former members of the fact-finding mission, uh, Marzuki Darusman, who was a chair of the fact-finding mission, and Chris Sidoti, who was a member of the fact-finding mission, that maybe we should continue something as an advisory board or whatever. Um, And then we saw the outbreak of COVID. And so we thought, oh, scratch this idea. It's not going to go anywhere. We can't get people over out. And during the latter part of my mandate, since I wasn't allowed into Myanmar, I was meeting people from outside of Myanmar. I was airlifting people to the places where I was to meet with them, the people on the ground. Um, then February 1 of 2021, uh, we see this horrible news. February 2nd, the three of us 
got together again and we said, we've got to continue our plan. And so by March of 2021, we set up this council. Our major theme is the three cuts. If you know about the four cuts of Myanmar's previous uh, military tactics, our three cuts is cut the money, cut the arms, and cut the impunity. And what we uh, advocate or we planned to do was to amplify the voices of the people to the international community and as well to try to uh, do enough uh, research and briefing papers that will benefit the uh, international community but also benefit the people of, of Myanmar. And we've translated most of our reports into, all of our reports into uh, Burmese language so that the people will understand uh, the UN system, uh, different uh, laws, international standards, etc. Uh, we support and advise the, the CSOs, the people, uh, the NUG, uh, give them advice. And at the same time, we also meet with the international community uh, stakeholders to give them uh, a, an accurate assessment of what's actually happening on the ground. As someone who played a critical role in monitoring the situation as special rapporteur, you know, and in your, your new capacity with the Special Advisory Council, um, and speaking to states on behalf of populations, you know, what are your thoughts on the role of the international community and ASEAN on, in addressing the crisis? I know you mentioned earlier you were very disappointed in what you witnessed um, in sort of the earlier phases of Myanmar's history through Rakhine State. You know, various parts of the UN and international community have been widely criticized for how they've handled the situation and have also conducted some much-needed self-reflection through uh, the Rosenthal Report and other mechanisms. Obviously, you remain very open and vocal. So, you know, what are your thoughts on how the international community and ASEAN are handling things? Um, let me, I think I might want to answer this in three parts. One would be the UN engagement. Another would be the international community. Another would be a, a separate of course, ASEAN is included in the international community, but let me separate out ASEAN. Uh, we've done a, a, a research uh, paper on the UN engagement, and we've criticized the UN um, and um, the country team uh, heavily. Uh, you, the Security Council is, I mean, is not able to do anything. Uh, and the Secretary General can do more, but he hasn't, he's not. Uh, we see how the UN and the international community responded to uh, Ukraine. Uh, that hasn't, that kind of interest and response uh, never existed for, for Myanmar. And, and Myanmar is now fading in the minds of the UN, etc. The UN has its, uh, uh, rules of engagement, the principle of engagement, and uh, it, they should uh, really uh, adhere to the charter of the United Nations, but they are not. The UN agencies 
and the country team, they have really betrayed the, the people of Myanmar uh, several times during uh, the military uh, regime, even during the uh, democratization transformation period, and now, um, which I think, uh, you know, you've, you've probably heard a lot of uh, never again, and that's when uh, uh, Charles Petrie's report in Sri Lanka came out too. Uh, never again, but I say it's always again, forever again. The UN just never learns from its mistake. And every time they do a commission a paper, ah, oh, this is great, but they never follow through. Rosenthal's report, uh, he really didn't put out a lot of recommendations to implement, but the few that he did, the country team ha is not following through. There's no mechanism. Uh, I'd like to see the UN. The UN always calls for accountability, you know, accountability on uh, states and countries. But what about the accountability on the UN? You know, do no harm. No, they're always doing harm. They, I've seen the previous UN country team in 2014 on kowtowing to the military regime. And they're doing that again uh, because I, that's how UN is. I mean, they're, they've forgotten their mission. They're there to serve the people, not to serve their own organization. And uh, the country team is, I think, uh, needs to really reflect. And I, I, I really say shame on the country team and the UN agencies. When I was the rapporteur during the 2014-15 area, uh, the, the resident coordinator and the heads of UN agents, some of the heads of UN agencies, tried to manipulate my end of mission statement. They didn't want me to, to even say the word Rohingya in my statement. And uh, yes, that's how bad it went. But I no, I went ahead and, and said all those. And um, I really had many, many confrontations with the resident coordinator, with the um, uh, some of the heads of the UN agencies. So it, it, it ended up where the resident coordinator at one point said, uh, she will not support my mission. That is outrageous. You know, she's there to support my mission. She will not provide me with a UN, UN agency car, UN car, etc. So I got UN OCHA to support me and they provided their own car which is ridiculous. You know, this by itself is uh, the resident coordinator has really breached her mandate and uh, there was no punishment for that. But she later on, it was during her time where there was the, the major atrocities and, and she moves on with a, uh, with a uh, promotion to with a bigger mandate to India and, and elsewhere and other uh, UN agency heads did the same thing. Um, the international community, some, we've talked to many and, you know, the sanctioning of the targeted sanctions like the MEHL, MEC, and the MOGE, oil and gas uh, enterprise. It took many years when finally the EU and, uh, and different 
countries, states are sanctioning MOGE, MEC, and MEHL. These are the the cash cow for the military. It goes into the pockets of the military, and still there are companies that are dealing, and still countries that are dealing with them. I'm I was very heartened to hear that Finland just passed a res, their law that uh, they will stop uh, development assistance to several countries, uh, Myanmar is included, and, and they will not. Uh, I think something to the effect that they will not uh, support the UN uh, just for the sake of supporting. They want to see where uh, there is the need. Uh, it would be a needs assessed, needs based uh, approach, I think. And th- these are my words. It may not have been the words of the Finnish government. Uh, there are several UN d- agencies that I can name, which are the are the really the worst in the UN's agency system. I will not name them now, but later on, if I when I if and when I do a a, a book on on Myanmar, I will definitely name the agencies and the heads of those agencies uh, d- that I had uh, experienced. So the international community, um, they can push their leverage through Thailand to open the Thai border to for uh, international assistance, uh, a, uh, humanitarian assistance to cross over the border. Uh, and I've also suggested maybe Bangladesh can open up their borders to uh, for admit, uh, humanitarian assistance through Rakhine. India is another country that can do that. China, we don't know, but it's also worth trying. But Thailand shares the largest, the longest border. So Thailand, and this is where international community can put more pressure on Thailand to do this, but they're not doing this. Um, And now let me talk about the ASEAN as a whole. ASEAN, I'm sorry, has to go. It has not done anything in ter- uh, regarding Myanmar and the people of Myanmar. In 2015, when there was a boat crisis and I talked with the ASEAN um, ambassadors, I said, you know, you have to do something about these uh, atrocities committed by the military that is leading to people leaving Myanmar. And there, you remember at that time, people were pushing back the boats back to Myanmar to the Rakhine state, because I told them, this will go beyond the borders of Rakhine and into the ASEAN region. And then consequently, after that, it will go, it will become a global issue. They did not uh, heed to that at all. And the five-point consensus has really no teeth. Uh, The delivery of humanitarian assistance through the AHA Center AHA Center has no mandate nor the capacity to deliver any humanitarian assistance. Knowing very well that it doesn't, they keep uh, suggesting that uh, it go through AHA. Um, and I think that the, the UN itself should uh, intervene more. They're playing a ping pong game. Now, you've got the regional mechanism. ASEAN, you go ahead. Knowing well that ASEAN has no, you know, they're they have no uh, teeth in, in, in what 
constituted the, uh, this ASEAN charter. And uh, now the ASEAN uh, says that maybe the UN can, they did send a signal to the UN to come in and help, but no, the UN keeps ping-ponging. And, and so ASEAN has, uh, has not done, I don't think it, it, it has done anything and it will not be able to do anything. Uh, we saw an, a window of opportunity with uh, Indonesia being the chair of the ASEAN, but that went very quickly, was nothing being accomplished. Now it's Lao PDR, uh, which is very close to the junta and China, which will not do much at all. Uh, this year is Lao, next year will be Malaysia, maybe Malaysia uh, when it uh, gets to be the chair. Uh, may be hopeful, but in the meantime, I think, and we always said that uh, last year, 2023, would be a make it or break it year, and we saw that it was true. It was a make it year for the people. It did not break the pe people at all. So this year, I think it's going to escalate more. Uh, the people will gain more power. But now is the time where the UN and the international community must be ready to step in and build Myanmar once the military uh, uh, fails. And it's also time for the, the international community and the UN to push the military over the border and put them once and for all to put them back into the barracks and hold them accountable. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.